Welcome to Week in Review, where we recap issues and events pertinent to Central Illinois. I'm WNBD News Director Cooper Banks. They say pretrial fairness and support for the Safety Act were on the ballot this past Election Day in Illinois. A group of Safety Act proponents gathered in Chicago to make their case as state lawmakers met in Springfield for the fall veto session this week. Top state Democrats expressing a willingness to negotiate, except perhaps on the bill's most controversial measure. Take a listen. Good morning, everybody. My name is Brianna Payton. I'm a policy analyst with the Chicago Community Bond Fund, and we are a proud member of the Coalition to End Money Bond and the Illinois Network for Pretrial Justice. We are here today with over 400 people that came from all parts of Illinois, from all walks of life, uh, to fight to protect the Pretrial Fairness Act as a win for our communities and as a win for public safety. The current cash bail system, as Senator Peters says, does not keep our communities safe. It does not address the issues that our communities are actually facing and that require real solutions. And we are so confident that the pretrial fairness provisions of the Safety Act will actually enhance community safety and allow us to have a more just and fair uh, legal system. We have been supported in this work and we have partnered in this work with not only advocates and people who have been impacted by the criminal legal system, but also people who uh, work with and advocate for um, victims, victims of crime, victims of gender-based violence, and they have played a central role um, in shaping this legislation. So we are here because we cannot stand for such monumental, pivotal, Legislation that is aimed at addressing racial and economic injustice, legislation that was a response to historic nationwide and statewide uprisings that demanded a change to our criminal legal system and demanded um, a, a response to racism. We cannot allow that to be rolled back. We cannot allow that to be gutted. We cannot allow for this act to be changed in such a way that it goes into effect as something that is unrecognizable and not true to what it was brought into place to do. That would be a slap in the face to the communities um, who fought and were in the streets and put their bodies and freedom on the line for this movement. It would be a slap in the face to everyone who has organized and advocated for years for this change. This was not a last minute change. This was years in the making. This legislation was introduced a full year and multiple years before it was actually passed. Um, and it was done thoughtfully, and it was done with our communities in mind. It was done with safety in mind. It was done with fairness and justice in mind. And so any changes that are going to happen, any changes to that legislation, have to be done in that same spirit, have to be done in the spirit of fairness and safety and justice and with a willingness to acknowledge and respond to and make sure we are addressing racial and economic injustice, the overuse of pretrial incarceration, and the devastating impacts that it has on our communities. People lose jobs, housing, custody of their children, and sometimes their lives due to pretrial incarceration. And we have to have that top of mind as we negotiate and determine what this legislation will look like moving forward. We thank the legislators who have stood boldly and championed this issue and have fought for this historic change to be passed. We are so excited for Illinois to be a leader in pretrial justice reform, um, and we are so excited for all of the amazing benefits that will be experienced by our communities as a result of the successful implementation of this legislation come January 1st, 2023 and beyond. So I will pass it to Vicki Smith from the Illinois Coalition Against Domestic Violence. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. Again, my name is Vicki Smith. I'm the president and CEO of the Illinois Coalition Against Domestic Violence. Today, under our current system, my office and hotlines all around the state 
regularly receive calls from people who have done everything they can think of and that the law provides to be safe from the person abusing them. Far too often, when an abusive person is arrested, they are released based on the amount of money they have in, rather than a determination of how dangerous they are. Under provisions of the Safety Act, the prosecutors and courts will need to gather information to make decisions about whether an arrested person should be detained or released with conditions. Just yesterday, we heard from the mother of a young child who has tried repeatedly to get the local prosecutor to take action against her ex-husband as he continues to harass and threaten both her and her child, including running into them head-on with his car. We have also heard from one of our members about a woman they are working with whose abuser was on electronic monitoring, cut it off, harmed her again, and no charges were filed. The provisions built into the Pre-Trial Fairness Act will not force the prosecutions, but courts will need to do more than check a bank account to determine if someone is too dangerous to the community to be released. I look forward to seeing our justice systems deliver justice more evenly. Thank you. And I would like to introduce Representative Kim Buckner. Thank you, Vicki. Good morning. <coughs> Excuse me. I want to speak to the implementation of the Pretrial Fairness Act. When we passed this historic legislation, we knew that ending money bond will require planning by an implementation task force just like any other big piece of legislation, including other historic legislation like CJIP. This is nothing new. Not only did we intentionally build in a one-year planning runway in advance of the end of money bond, but the implementation task force of policymakers, law enforcement, advocates, and legislators have been diligently working all year to perfect this legislation and to help counties prepare for these changes. Some state's attorneys have been working to prepare for the new system, and others have chosen to bury their heads in the sand and assume that a rich billionaire would save them from doing their jobs. <coughs> the voters in Illinois have spoken, and they weren't won over, as Senator Peters said, by ginned-up hysteria over the end of days. The outright lies, the critical omissions, and the stoking of fears through fake newspapers, lazy logic, internet manipulation and roundly, were roundly rejected by the people of Illinois. And despite the narrative playing out in the media and online over the past few months, the Implementation Task Force has been diligently working to make sure that we're ready come January 1st. Said differently, while opponents were committed to finding ways to make people scared, we were doing the work to make people safe. While they were looking for ways to perplex people, we were looking for ways to protect people. And while they were committed to forcing us to go backwards, this group and the others that we have worked with so hard have been committed to moving this state forward because that's what we took an oath to do. Now that the election is behind us, we need to shift our focus to all of the ways ending money bond will help individuals and communities. And that's why I'm thrilled to be joined by domestic abuse advocates here this morning and over 400 community advocates that are here today to lobby legislators and to rally in support of the Pretrial Fairness Act. Uh, it's my pleasure to bring up to the podium my good friend from Chicago Alliance of, uh, Against Sexual Exploitation, Madeline Baer.
Hi, everyone. Good morning. Um, like Representative Buckner said, my name is Madeline Baer. I'm the policy manager for the Chicago Alliance Against Sexual Exploitation. Um, we're here today to continue our fight to get the Pretrial Fairness Act implemented across Illinois and create a criminal legal system that is much more focused on safety and risk instead of money. CASE provides free legal services to survivors of sexual assault throughout Cook County and across the state for a variety of matters, for civil court, for criminal court, Title IX, education, workplace issues. We're also the only agency in the state that provides representation through victims' rights work in a criminal court for adult survivors in Illinois. So we, our job is to protect victims and their constitutional rights to privacy and safety that's afforded to them under the, our state constitution. Our attorneys know this system backwards and forwards, and we know how it does not serve our clients. Too often, money bond is endangering survivors and making money the most important thing in determining whether someone is released or not pretrial. Under the Pretrial Fairness Act, Illinois will prioritize safety and risk of survivors through comprehensive, fact-based hearing processes for release decisions instead of money. Survivors deserve a criminal legal system that takes their cases seriously, prioritizes them, and also respects their autonomy and safety planning. The Pretrial Fairness Act and all of its provisions around victim notification, the detention hearing process, the ability to get protective orders at the time of the detention hearing is a really necessary step towards creating a system focused on safety. I'm incredibly proud of this team behind us, all of the advocates that are here today, our coalition of attorneys, advocates, impacted people, survivors, and so many more. And we're urging the General Assembly to get over the finish line, get us over the finish line for this law. We want to start working. We want to start building this system. So we want to do that on January 1st. Thank you. It's been nine years since tornadoes ripped through Pekin, East Peoria, and Washington, Illinois. The damage was especially devastating in Washington, where three lives were lost and over 1,100 homes were damaged or destroyed. Surrounding communities, the state, and the nation came to Washington's aid after that storm. Then Illinois Governor Pat Quinn came through with, 14, with nearly $15 million to help Washington rebuild its streets, curbs, and gutters and the most devastated areas. But the city and its residents fought for months with FEMA to get money to rebuild homes and businesses. The EF4 tornado on November 17, 2013, was estimated to have caused $935 million in damage in Washington alone. Washington, Illinois police officer Derek Thomas took time out of his day this week to share his story from that day nine years ago with WMBD's The Craig Collins Show. 1470, 100.3 WMBD, it's The Craig Collins Show. My next guest uh, certainly remembers what happened exactly nine years ago today. Officer Derek Thomas joins the show. Uh, a simple first question for you, sir. Um, what are your memories of uh, that day in November in 2013? Um, well, there's a lot of memories. Some good, some bad, of course, but uh, I think... Uh, just seeing the cloud firsthand, um, that was pretty much the scariest memory I've got uh, from that day, for sure. Uh, there were there was looting. There were all kinds of things to deal with. Uh, from your uh, role in that as a police officer with the Washington Police Department at that time, what were the, the things, maybe even the, the way in which throughout the day you discovered what the focuses would be for you or for anyone else in the police department? Well, I, I think the focus was mainly 
caretaking and taking care of our community, I mean, such a tragedy like that, that's the first thing that comes to mind. And then, yes, you're right. There was some looting that went on, not as much as I would have expected having seen other uh, other communities get hit by similar things, whether it's Joplin or more or so forth. But uh, we would handle them one by one as it came, and, you know, it's the same thing as anything else police-related, having to sort out who's who, what they did, and so forth. But at the end of the day, it, it got taken care of, and, and we were able to help the community in doing so. Uh, let me ask you this. It looks like you have become a trained weather spotter. Um, you've uh, learned a lot about um, uh, weather in general. Uh, I don't think anyone would call you a meteorologist, but I did see a quote saying you're about as close as it gets on the Washington Police Department. That happened even before uh, 2013, right? Did you have interest in, in weather events for other reasons? Yeah, I I, uh, I actually lived in Europe as a kid, so we didn't have all the tornadoes and so forth that they have over here. So when I moved back here in 87 and saw firsthand that you know we had tornadoes and so forth i started taking classes you know the national weather service puts on a great tornado spotting thing every spring and uh it even got to the point where here when my kids got old enough i was taking them there too uh so yeah like you said i'm not a meteorologist but uh Yes, I am very interested in weather. <laughs> You're as close as they get on the Washington Police Department. Again, I, I saw that. Uh, let me ask you this, uh, just out of curiosity. Uh, what has changed in the way in which planning for an event like what happened in Washington actually impacted even the department there, maybe policing in general? Are there any kind of things that you guys uh, do differently now uh, because of going through that? Well, I think the differences in anything uh, would mainly be people are much more alert, you know, when when the weather people on TV or radio or wherever start saying, yeah, we got some storms possibly coming, whether it's us, the police department or people in the community or by all means, Facebook, you know, everyone's very interested and they're, they got their eyes on the sky. So yeah. while not everyone's trained to be a weather spotter, everyone's trained to see if something weird is coming along or even something that they may consider out of the normal. And I think people are more apt to call in and, uh, and to get more eyes on it and to determine what's going on, whether it's good or bad. Uh, so you said that some good things happened, too, even though some of your memories, of course, are not going to be positive. Um, what were some of the good ones? What are uh, even maybe beyond the day itself? Well, and this was my first event. Well, I, I shouldn't say my first event because I, I was a police officer in Eureka when they had the Parsons tornado go through there. But this was the one where I could see an actual community as a whole who got hit by such a such an incredible force of nature and it didn't matter if people, you know, had a ton of money or no money. I mean, everyone was helping each other and coming together to, you know, help your fellow neighbor, so to speak. I mean, I know it's kind of cliche, but uh, you could really witness that. And so whether it was people bringing food or helping clear up people's yards, uh, it was pretty fantastic. You know, one last question for you, and thank you for making some time. Uh, Officer Derek Thomas, who is still with the Washington Police Department and was there uh, in 2013 when the tornado hit Washington. Um, in today's society, there are conversations that puzzle me a lot in the world of, of the way we talk about police officers especially, but the way we talk about a lot of different things. Events like that, the tornado in Washington, demonstrate how important, how valuable, how, how a community turns to first responders for your, like yourself in any of these situations. Is there anything that you've learned or anything that, that you have as a reaction to 
uh, remembering that uh, along with everything else, but just remembering how important it is to have people like you race toward whatever's going on. It could be uh, a violence within a community or it could be something as devastating as a tornado that hits an entire community. Um, uh, what, uh, if anything, would you react to in talking about the way we, we sort of act today? Well, I, I think, I mean, I think there's an appreciation after something like that happens for not just police, but for um, the medical, for the firefighters and someone, someone or not someone, but some people that have gone somewhat unrecognized, in my opinion, were all the farmers that had the skid steers and so forth that were able to come out and help move stuff out of, out of the streets. I mean, yeah. people... When something like this happens, everyone comes together, and it, it does. It seems like everyone's more tight knit, whether you know, whatever walk of life you are. And uh, I think that's it's it's sad that we had to go through something like that, but it's of great course. that the community came together like they did. Are there any people, any instances, any stories you remember um, from your experience? I know I said last question, but this is truly the last one. Is there anything that jumps to mind as far as uh, something you'd be able to share? Not so much. I mean, that, that one one experience that I had was. When this cloud was going through town, the the man, his name was Zachary, that was working the Shell gas station, saw it come through, and it was heading right for him. And so he took off running. And when I was on Peoria Street, I saw him come out. Basically, it looked like he was coming right out of the cloud. Uh, came in, jumped in the back of my car, and I took him down to Hardee's. And I, that must have had some sort of an impact on him because he ended up becoming our intern here at the Washington Police Department. I don't know where he's gone from here on out, but uh, yeah, it's it's it, uh, he had a more fond view of policing as far as I can tell from that day. And wow, better. Uh, I'm floored by that story, actually. Uh, so this individual was running away from the tornado, right? As it it started to hit, and you uh, hopped him in your cruiser, and then you you went to Hardy's just to hide. Uh, no, I took it. It was downhill, and it was away from the tornado, and it was a it was a brick building, so it was secure. He he went in there, and I mean, at first he, at first he wanted to stay with me, but I, when I told him I was driving back into it, uh, wow, yeah, he decided to stay there where it was safe. So. Well, uh, that's that's amazing. Uh, thank you uh, for giving us a few minutes. Thank you for uh, serving and protecting your community then and now, sir. Um, and I hope to talk to you again soon. Well, thank you so much. So much damage, so much devastation, particularly in Washington. They lost three lives there, over 1,100 homes damaged or destroyed. Communities from Peoria to East Peoria, people from Dunlap, first responders from across the region, across the state and nation coming in to Washington's aid after that storm devastated the region. Much is rebuilt now, much with the help of funding from federal and state sources. Then Illinois Governor Pat Quinn providing nearly $15 million to help Washington rebuild its streets, curbs, and gutters at the time. It was a long fight with FEMA to get money to rebuild homes and businesses. Total damage, once again, from that EF4 tornado, November 17, 2013, estimated at $935 million in Washington alone. Coming up, we'll hear from Washington's mayor as he remembers that day nine years ago. We continue our look back at a terrible day in central Illinois history nine years ago as winds whipped up tragedy all across the region, but especially in Washington. The guys on WNBD's The Greg and Dan Show caught up with Washington Mayor Gary Manier. 
It was nine years ago. I remember it vividly. Most of us do, especially if you lived in the, the city of Washington. Uh, it started out a beautiful Sunday morning, kind of unusually warm and, and almost spring-like. Uh, and then later the tornado uh, hit uh, parts of Pekin, too. East Peoria got a little bit. And then the biggest uh, uh, devastation was uh, those homes that were just literally uh, destroyed in Washington. The mayor then, the mayor now, Gary Minear. Hi, Gary. Good morning, Greg. How are you? Wonderful, sir. I think it is uh, a, a poetic, uh, maybe a, a divine intervention that on this anniversary today, uh, in about 20 minutes, it's your annual prayer breakfast. Absolutely. We're just uh, so so excited to, to come and give, give thanks to everything we have and everything that's uh, happened to us and how we, uh, and I never say we have completely recovered because the emotional scars will never go away. Right. Uh, we've done quite well. I know you've gone over this a million times, but where were you that morning? I was in church, like uh, a lot of our residents, and I think that uh, saved a lot of lives. Uh, they weren't home, and uh, fortunately, our church is only one was damaged. Uh, we were very blessed. Uh, I, I was at my church, and I uh, got a text message from the police chief, and uh, then the sirens went off, and I got in my car and headed headed uh, into into the city even further, and and became. Uh, up upon the uh, devastation and uh, couldn't believe what I saw, but I thought it was pretty just uh, the apartment complex at Georgetown. I thought that was it and looked across the way and uh, it was just uh, something you'll never forget. Yeah, uh, but how many homes total? How many homes total? 1108 with damage or destroyed. 1108, man. And and I know we lost a couple of residents, but uh, 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 was that right? Two Two people died? Three total, three total. One, one the first day, and then uh, two from injuries. From injuries uh, yeah. Which, which I mean, God bless those folks. Certainly, we we honor them. But but at the same time, it could have been it could have been a thousand people. It could have been two thousand people. You know, if you you think about it and you see these that hit in the middle of the night uh, when people are asleep, it yeah. uh, could have been pretty pretty whole different story. How does uh, uh, recap for me how the mechanism works? to then ignite uh, or, or uh, uh, engage, or is the better word, engage all the entities that need to help you, uh, from FEMA to uh, the state police to all. How does that happen? Well, uh, fortunately, it seems like they just all show up. Uh, everybody has a disaster recovery plan, and when a community is hit like this, I mean, everybody springs into action. I mean, we know what Red Cross and Salvation Army does for disasters, and uh, our ministerial association, uh, our churches took over, uh, but state police were there in hour one. Uh, period. Uh, police and fire came. I mean, we we had help from. Uh, we ended up having to shut our borders down because there were so many people trying to get in. And all, you know, a lot of people say, "Oh, they were coming to take a look," but most of them were coming to help. I think yeah. that really does a lot for our fabric program. All right. Well, we wish you the best. Tell everybody at the prayer breakfast. We said hello and uh, God bless you. We'll talk to you later. That's Gary Manier the mayor of Washington. We take a turn now quickly to news of fascination involving America's next moonshot and the Artemis One rocket now jetting through space on a journey of discovery. Peoria Riverfront Museum Dome Planetarium Chief Renee Kerrigan joined WNBD's The Greg and Dan Show to share in the excitement. So the goal is to land astronauts back on the surface of the moon again and to do it in a way that's a little bit more sustainable than last time. So um, the plan is to build a small 
station in lunar orbit called the Lunar Gateway, and the spacecrafts will dock with the Lunar Gateway, and then from there they'll be able to descend to the surface of the moon. So some of the pieces will be reusable, whereas the Apollo hardware was all one-time use hardware. What is the, what is the gateway again? Explain that. The gateway is a like the International Space Station, okay. but much smaller, so okay. a small station in orbit around the moon. That's not built yet, but part of the next Artemis missions will be to start building it, and then there'll be some missions that don't have any people on board that are just fully robotic that will also help build that little gateway. Will the gateway be built by people at all, or is it all robotic? It will be built at Artemis Three, I believe. So the third Artemis mission does have a component of astronauts helping with okay. that. But uh, they won't land on the moon necessarily. Not until Artemis Five, and the goal for that had originally been 2024, which I knew was a stretch when right. it was first announced. I I've been thinking they don't actually have a date for Artemis Five yet. My my thought is maybe it will happen by the end of the 2020s, and if not, in the very early 2030s. But time is such. I mean, the 50 years has gone by so quickly, and 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 now a year or two doesn't really matter too much. It's coming. It's coming. But why are we doing this? I, I don't understand. Is this all about Mars? And why about? And then if that's the case, why? I actually don't think it's very much about Mars. I know that NASA will say, well, they say that because we've been to the moon. And I think that for a lot of the public, we need to um, help us feel like we're going someplace new. Right. Yeah. yeah. And so they say on to the moon and then onward to Mars. And now it's absolutely true that we can't just. Uh, leap to Mars, that we couldn't just launch a big rocket and go to Mars tomorrow because we haven't been doing this beyond low Earth orbit human spaceflight. We've done human spaceflight to the International Space Station um, continuously for the past 20 years, but we haven't left Earth orbit since Apollo 17 with astronauts. And so I... In that sense, it is true that we do have to go to the moon first, get those skills back first, to go onward to Mars and building the hardware will help us go to Mars, that sort of thing. But I'm not really sure that we're going to launch from the Lunar Gateway to then get to Mars. That part, I think, is is maybe a little bit overblown. I always love to bring up this. They talked about, like, the computers in 1969 were like a 24K computer, yeah. like of RAM. Yes, absolutely. The technology is vastly improved. Another... Uh, The thing that they had to do with the uh, Apollo missions was they had to do all the computing in advance. They had to do it all um, on Earth as much as they could in the big computer machines on Earth because on computers of that uh, machine were very small. Um, And so now, yes, absolutely, our technology has advanced so much we have the ability to do a lot more quickly. Um, And the other thing is our computer. Cameras have advanced oh so gosh. much, so I'm excited to see the images from these missions because we'll have the close-up pictures of the moon. Speaking of which, uh, new pictures I, th- I just saw this morning from the Webb telescope and that camera. Do you call that a camera or just it's a telescope? It's got a camera yeah. on board, yeah. Um, um, what are we... Now, that's not... That doesn't take pictures of this, right? That's not a lunar... You can't actually take pictures of the moon with the James Webb because it would be so bright and hot in the James really? Webb. Really? It'd be too much? Yeah. yeah. It'd be too much? Same with the Earth. It can't take pictures too of the close. Earth. Really? Yeah, too darn. close, too hot. Wow. It would be like my mom used to take pictures back in the 60s. I mean, it was all out of focus and real bright. and nobody could see nobody's <laughs> With a flash. Yeah, too much flash. flash. 
Um, uh, what are the pictures that I saw today? What are we seeing that now? There's a proto-star, which means a star that's just forming. Because the James Webb is looking at the, in the infrared, it's able to see uh, dust and, and gas that would be invisible to our eyes. And so it's this beautiful sort of butterfly or dumbbell shape. And in the center, there's a star that's just forming. Cool. What are we learning that we didn't know before, or are we are, are we just getting better pictures? Oh, no, we're absolutely learning um, a lot that we didn't know before, and much of that is going to still be analyzed by astronomers and, and is still coming out in their official papers. But one thing that's really interesting and exciting to astronomers is we're finding galaxies that are farther and farther away than we believed we would be able to find them, which means because of look back time, when you look farther out in space, you're looking backwards in time. We're seeing galaxies that are younger than we expected to find them. So 13.5 billion years away means we're seeing that galaxy as it was just forming 13.5 billion years ago, and astronomers did not expect to find galaxies that far away or that young based on what we think we understand about how the universe formed. They did not think galaxies would have been formed that early in the evolution of our universe. So that, that to me, as a layperson sitting here listening to you, that sounds like mind-boggling information, but that's me. Is it mind-boggling to a scientist? Is it is like, holy smokes. I think it is mind-boggling to a scientist, and yet uh, the astronomers who are working in cosmology, which is the field of trying to understand how our universe evolved in the very early mm-hmm. stages of our universe, they know that we don't know a lot <laughs> of what we're trying to understand. Like, And so it's all, uh, if you're a scientist, you have to have a healthy understanding of this is what we think we understand, and this is the evidence that props up these ideas. Right. But if we learn something else, and it could change. Wine and cheese under the stars, back to the moon, and seeing the edge of space is the full title. What are we doing? Well, uh, there's been so much exciting things happening in space. I like to do these programs to keep people updated. So we're talking about the Artemis program, about this launch that was just successful uh, this week, and then the the whole program, the returning to the moon and all the components of that. And then we'll also be talking about the James Webb Space Telescope. The pictures look amazing on the Planetarium Dome, oh, so we'll be sharing them. Um, and then... Canterbury Creations, which is a, a locally owned small business that uh, does catering. Emily Canterbury She's owns that. Awesome. Oh, she yeah. makes these delicious little charcuterie boxes. So every guest gets a charcuterie box. Uh, you get some wine, you get this program in the planetarium. It's a really fun time. There's a lot of excitement that's built to a crescendo this weekend as the annual and award winning Festival of Lights Parade offers an unofficial kickoff to the local holiday season across the Peoria area. WNBD's Julia Bradley caught up with Jill Peterson with the City of East Peoria, which helps conduct the event. Tell us just the basics of um, the parade, the routes, what we need to know, when people need to get there, that type of thing to start. Okay, well, the parade starts at 5.45 p.m. on Saturday, so the streets will all close down at 5.30 uh, the streets all along the parade route, as well as Washington. So the parade starts at the festival building at the intersection of Washington and Dolan's Lane, and then it turns on to Washington and travels along the street. It passes East Peoria High School, uh, continues on to the downtown area, and then turns and crosses the railroad tracks at the intersection of Washington and Camp. 
and then once it gets over the little bridge there on Washington, it will turn right onto Taylor Street. It will go in front of the Central Junior High building, and it ends at the East Peoria Post Office at the intersection of Springfield Road and Taylor Street. Now, people love to come out to the parade route and watch. Um, do you have any tips for where they should watch or, or, or things that they need to know if they're going to be bringing chairs and things like that? Well, we don't want them to sit on the street. Um, don't park on the street on the parade route and don't put your chairs on the street. Put your uh, chairs on the sidewalks or on the grass. We want people to please watch their children. They get very excited and, and sometimes want to dart out to see the costume characters because we will have Batman and some Star Wars characters. But we need the parents to really keep an eye on their kids and make sure that they're safe. Uh, spectator parking is available at the Festival Building, and that's at 2200 East Washington Street, East Peoria High School at 1401 East Washington, the Fond du Lac Park District Administration Building near the intersection of Washington and Veterans Drive, and at Central Junior High School on Taylor Street. If you do park in a private lot, just make sure they are allowing parking. Some people do block their lots off for their employees. And if you do park on a side street, please make sure you don't block anybody's driveway. Now, I know from attending the parade, you know, several years that um, if you're making your way to East Peoria from places like Peoria or uh, Washington or, or uh, Morton or something like that, um, those on and off ramps can get pretty full. Is there like a recommendation on how early people should, should get there? We do have people who come stake out their spot first thing in the morning. Um, and that's up to them. We don't mind if people put their chairs out along the route as long as they're not on the street. Um, but they do need to make sure that they are in their place by 530 because the streets will be closed. Okay. Now, I know that, Jill, you've been a part of the Festival of Lights Parade for many, many years. How many is it this year? This is the 38th Parade of Lights and the 38th Festival of Lights. And when they started this, they did the first parade thinking it would be a one-time thing, and about halfway through the festival, they were already planning what they would do the next year. And it's just going on strong, and I see us doing this for many, many years. How many floats are in this year's parade, do you know? About 30. We don't put all of our floats in. We try to mix it up so that people will see something different. But one thing that we are very excited about is the return of the USS East Peoria. It's out of space dock. After three years of being repaired, it's been rebulbed, rebuilt, and it's on a trailer now being towed. It's the last of our big floats to be put on a trailer, so there's no chance it will come out of warp on the parade route. That's good to know. Is there anything else new in this year's parade? We have the return of the new float we had last year, which was the toy train carrying the replica of our Great Christmas Light Fight trophy. This year we really wanted to focus on the return of the USS East Peoria People really travel far and wide to see that float. They have been questioning if we were going to bring it back, so we're really excited for people to see um, So after the parade is over, how long do we have to wait to, to see them once they're in display? The floats will be parked after the parade overnight, and then on Monday we will start moving them up Springfield Road Hill and get everything set up for the Felipe's Winter Wonderland drive through display. That will open Thanksgiving night. Okay, so if people have family that are going to be in town for the big meal, um, they'll be able to go see that that evening then. 
will be open at 5 o'clock that night, and the drive-through display will be open every night through January 2. Now, are there different hours of, of that being open through the holidays, or is it the same the same yes, hours? there are. If you, and the hours are 5 to 9 p.m. Sunday through Thursday, when there are usually shorter lines, 5 to 11 p.m. Friday and Saturday, so usually you might have a wait those nights, and then we will do 5 to 9 p.m. December 24 through January 2. Every Monday that the display is open, it's Chick-fil-A Monday, and every car that comes through will get free dessert coupons from Chick-fil-A East Peoria while supplies last. And what is the, uh, the admission per car? The admission is $10 for cars, trucks, and vans, $30 for a small bus, which is mini, party, shuttle, school, RV, and limousine, and $150 for a full-size charter motor coach. And we do accept cash, debit, and credit. Okay. So, of course, it's busy on the weekends. Uh, again, you suggest coming on a weeknight to get into the park faster. I know those lines can be long on the weekend. I've brought my kids many years. <laughs> yep. Monday night is usually our slowest night of the week. Um, Friday and Saturday, and even as Christmas gets closer, Sunday are our busiest nights of the week. Um, we obviously get busier the closer we get to the holiday. And then after the holiday, we're still open, but we're not quite as busy. So there's a lot of times that people can pick to come when we're not quite as busy. But if you do come on a night when we're going to be very busy and have a long line, bring snacks, bring things for the kids to do in the car, just plan that you're going to be in line for a while. And most people have gotten used to that now. And they, they bring treats and, and car games and things like that to keep everybody entertained. Absolutely. Now, uh, if, if someone has never been to Festival of Lights Parade or to the display before, I, I know you guys have a website. Where would you send them to get all this information? They can go to felipe.org, F-O-L-E-P-I.org. And Felipe is an acronym for Festival of Lights East Peoria, Illinois. And they can also find the festival on Facebook. Instagram, and Twitter. And we have far more things than just the parade and the drive through display, so they should go and check out those sites for our other things. We have a shop and stroll. Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat will be back after three years on hiatus. We have runs. We have a New Year's Eve party at the end of the festival. So there's lots of things that people can do during the month of December in East Peoria. Okay. Jill Peterson with East Peoria, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. That does it for this edition of Week in Review. Join us at this time next week on this Midwest 360 station for another recap of some of the biggest issues and events in central Illinois. You don't have to wait for Week in Review to get the lowdown on what's happening. For instant news 24-7, follow us at 1470 WMBD on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and at 1470WMBD.com. I'm Cooper Banks. WNBD News.